Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the acid test has been administered. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> hey, this is Kevin Dennis, and Hal Herring is with us today. Promises to be an interesting conversation. How you doing, Hal? I'm doing good. Awesome. I guess so we, how, we've got a go storm ahead. coming in here that's going to be, I think it's going to be four or five above it tomorrow. Ooh, ouch. And it's, um, 60, it's 60 right now. Ouch. We're about 50. I think we're going down to about 15 or 20 in the next couple of days. So yeah, gonna, gonna, it's going to be wild, though. We got the north wind just started blowing. So how is your uh, social distancing going from your metropolis of uh, Augusta, Montana? Well, you know, the store, we have a store. Our bars are closed, of course. But uh, we have one store that's taking it really seriously. You wash your hands when you go in. Wash your hands when you go out. They wear masks. Um, that store has been doing really good. Things are great on that. Um, in essence, uh, you know, we're really far from everybody anyway. But we have a lot of recreationists coming here. Like I was fishing this morning. Um, and, uh, I think it's going really well, you know, but we kind of have that feeling of there's a war going on way over yonder and we're not in it. Like in, like in that, the opening of, uh, that Hemingway book for whom the bell tolls, he said the war, the war went on and we just weren't in it anymore. So it's interesting because like I live in a relatively uh, remote community as well. And I was just looking on social media. Um, Gunnison County has tried to tell, you know, everyone just don't come here, right? Yeah. And a lot of these remote communities are saying, look, if you, if you, if you're a second, like the county I live in, strongly discouraging second homeowners from coming. Yes. And saying if you come into the county, you need to do a mandatory 14-day self-quarantine. And then I've also read that like. Um, a lot of the native tribes are people are trying to go, you know, camp on the native lands or whatever. They're coming from the east, and the natives are like, "No, we don't want you uh, on here." Yes, I, I bought a one-year uh, Blackfeet reservation fishing permit, you know, and I was super excited about that. I got I got one trip in, <laughs> and then, but you know, I mean, there's no way I wouldn't honor that. I mean, just like our community, we don't have the infrastructure to deal with with a lot of people sick at one time, and we've got and we've got a lot of older people. So, like, I mean, I think the Blackfeet are absolutely right in saying no. You can't drive up here and go fishing and hang around our reservation. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I know, like in in Gunnison, the Texas Attorney General has. Uh, sent them a warning letter or something but you know gunnison's actually got one of the highest rates of covid19 in the nation and because of the ski uh, area stuff right yep exactly because people bringing it in in ski area yeah and then they're also at a high elevation and they've been trying to send covid people down to a lower elevation because i mean obviously if it's something that makes it hard to breathe last thing you want to be is at eight thousand feet I, well. I never thought about that until you said that. I was like, never thought about that. Yeah. And and what did uh, what did the Texas attorney like? What was that letter? I guess what what was he saying? Uh, um, it was a warning to uh, to Gunnison County. Um, 
I forget it was, uh, I posted it on my social media, right? The article of it. But like, I just saw the director of outdoor recreation for Barrett, you know, Texas attorney general sends a warning. It was on nine news, but some people commented like, wow, this is going to be um, very interesting time to be a constitutional yeah. lawyer or whatever. Now, like from a history standpoint, Gunnison County was the only county in the U.S. that did not suffer a death in the Spanish flu 102 years ago because they blocked off everything. And they were like, no, don't come here. Yeah. So. And I noticed um, from your social media posting of that letter, um, there I think it dates back to the Spanish flu, but states have every right to say that you have to have a two-week quarantine if you come in from another state during a, a damn pandemic. I mean, that's law. Now, it's, 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 it was constitutional. It's law. So so now San Miguel County, which is the county right next to me, they, they've went so far as saying that if you're a resident and you're gone more than two days, you need to go back into quarantine mode. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're saying like, you know, just go do your little bit of grocery shopping, whatever. But if, if you travel somewhere for five days, you know, sorry, you're back. You know, we're treating you like you're an outsider. So yeah, it, it's interesting to, to think about like, how do you enforce something like that? Right. In San Miguel County, like they don't have a, they're, they don't have a large law enforcement, right? True. Yeah. And and what would it be? What would the penalty be if somebody like Ammon Bundy is coming up to uh, says he's coming to Idaho to do a Easter service, and they're they're debating over what law enforcement has it and like what would you do? What would enforcement look like? You know. I think in the case of San Juan County, which is Silverton, right? And there's only about 700 residents there, and that town is at almost 10,000 feet. I think they're threatening like a $5,000 fine and they've done it like to give a little bit of, you know, between where I live in San Juan County is a mountain pass known as red mountain pass. Okay. Top of the pass is very popular backcountry ski area, but the parking for your County is actually on the San Juan County side. And they've been issuing <laughs> citations up there for your County residents that have been backcountry skiing. Now it's pretty easy to get away from. All you got to do is park a quarter mile down on the other side of the road and just change your ski route a little bit, right? But if you go yeah. and park at the normal spot, yeah, they've been issuing citations or warnings. You know, my son went up there. I think he went up sledding or snowboarding, and yeah, he got a warning. So gotcha. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And it, do you think is that ban on or like prohibition on that backcountry skiing? Is that because they can't send first responders or or rescue teams without violating social distancing? Yeah, there's a it, little. Yeah, there's a little bit of that for sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. we had we had Kevin. Uh, what was it? Is it Kevin Koprick? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had him on our podcast last week. In like in the time. I think the, he was saying the week before they had already um, three three avalanche rescue calls in that oh. week, and so yeah. like mo mobilizing all those people and getting them, you know, in the in the helicopters together and in the in the cars together and just getting out to the areas to get 
you know, you eventually got like a group of 20 plus people on the side of a mountain. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And I guess the old anarchist in me would say, um, okay, boys and girls, you're on your own out there. There will be no rescues. Uh, nothing's going to happen. I mean, I mean, in the same way we do like backcountry mountaineering anyway, where you, nobody knows where you are, you know? Hmm. Um, but in our society, we have certain expectations, right? Oh yeah. And it's, it's kind of odd on the rescue thing. Like we just had Ben Brochu on a podcast. He had a pack rafting trip that really went sideways on him, right? In the Mm -hmm. Canadian Rockies. And he was saying like, you know, there's no, we knew there was like no rescue here. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, we had to figure it out. It was supposed to be a five day trip. It turned into an 11 day trip. We lost one boat, which had the bulk of the food. Yeah. You know, and all, all, all these things, right? Yeah. One day, one day they spent what, 16 hours and they only moved like 800 meters. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, yeah. And, but here, a lot of times people think, you know, they think that rescue is like a right, right? Like a service. And they yeah. don't understand that most of these rescue teams, well, almost all of them are volunteer, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, they don't understand some of the payment stuff and some of those things. Like I know when I was on the rescue team for a couple of years, um, everything had to be initiated by the sheriff's office because we had some things like we had we had someone that demanded from a high mountain one time that they get a hilly rescue off. Right. Yeah. And, um, it turned out being like a $18,000 bill or something to the County because he refused to pay his insurance and his insurance refused to pay it because they said he wasn't hurt bad enough or something similar. Sure. You know, it's like, that yeah, isn't that's really the way, That's what I know about expectation. Yeah. Yeah. But would there be a way where you could just simply say, you know, public lands public land but if you lo- if you get in trouble don't call and you know somebody would call the next minute yeah for sure <laughs> the, the problem is it comes down to reading instructions and stuff right mm-hmm. and, and you can lead a horse to water but can you really make them drink and no. if you can't <laughs> you know and if they don't follow instructions or if they say oh yeah i got that and then they fall and break their leg and they're like oh sorry that that bets off i, yeah. I don't agree to that anymore <laughs> this know? really hurts <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then you and then you have the kind of the adventure altruistic nature of your rescue team anyway yeah i mean who's gonna stay home when, who's gonna stay home when you know somebody's out there in the dark with a broken leg mm-hmm. you're True, not gonna stay home and with all the social distancing, I'm pretty sure CPR kind of violates it. <laughs> That's a guaranteed COVID. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, they, go ahead. Well, I was I was just gonna say, Hal, can you can you give us a little uh, background on, on kind of what you do? Um, you know, from the kind of writing stuff to uh, BHA podcast and all the like. Sure. Um, so. I've uh, I've been a conservation and environment and guns and everything else writer and reporter for about 22 years now, probably longer than that. But um, I'm a contributing editor at Field and Stream, and um, I've covered 
I've been super lucky in my, I don't even call it, I don't really call it a career because I worked part-time in the woods, like doing forest service contracting and stuff. But I've been a writer primarily for 20 plus years, 25 years. Um, and primarily I've covered conservation, but that's super wide. Like I, I got to fish the Mulchatna river while reporting on the pebble mine. You know, I've, I've like looked for elk in Mexico. Um, I've just, I've just had a really lucky experiential time with, with writing. And I, during that, I've written hundreds and hundreds of stories about like the major conservation issues of our day. Again, as a freelancer, I was able to pick and I was lucky enough to be able to, to have markets for that. You know, Hmm. um, we just finished a two year project. Uh, it was a Patagonia backed film called public trust. And it was about the public lands and the kind of the privatization movement. Um, I'm working on a two-year project here to deliver a, a book on the public lands. Um, over the last 10 years, a lot of my reporting has been on the American public lands and the conflicts, controversies um, inherent in that incredible ownership, you know. Um so let's see what else I, I mean, I, I mean, what led me to that was always, I was a fisherman and a hunter since I was able to walk. Um, I was a mountaineer and a rock climber from the time I was able to be 16 and get in a car and drive. Um, I just, uh, I guess I was kind of a general, a generalist on outdoor stuff. Um, I was never great at any of it. Although I, I, I've been hunting longer than I've been doing anything. So, <laughs> Hopefully, I've attained some some skill set there. So, when do you think the next big public land sell off kind of movements? You know, it ebbs, ebbs and flows. When do you think we're going to see the the next thing of oh, hey, we got to sell off all these lands? I, I I have a really a really disturbing answer for that. It as soon as as soon as your uh, regular politician recognizes what kind of deficit we've run up they're going to say that BLM lands just don't pay for themselves and they've got to be, they've got to be put on the block. Um, and then that's, there's going to be a cascade of demands. This is my opinion. This is my informed opinion. So I hope this doesn't happen, but there's going to be an, uh, a, a movement to discuss the public lands vis-a-vis the deficit that, that we've run up. In the, yeah. in the U.S. budget, but shortfalls. I, I actually, unfortunately, I uh, I agree. I know you share a lot of stuff on social media, and I think you posted something a few days ago. And some of the stuff you post, I just kind of write in that I acknowledge because it's really hard for me to say that I like it. Yeah, I uh, hear you. You know, and it. it but I, I tend to think like, yeah, this this we've run up a lot of debt and we keep wanting to run up more debt yeah and more debt and then they try to say well we got to get ourselves out of debt so yeah and nobody else in the world has anything like the american public lands i mean i was i was i, I, I used to be a tree planter a hoedad tree planter and um that's what brought me out west and uh i used to i, I started with warehouser in alabama and florida but um I'm going to try to cut that off real quick. But uh, I followed this tree planting site that's Canada. And um, the Canadian tree planting is very interesting because they they helicopter tree planters into these huge what they call blocks, what we would call a unit or a clear-cut unit, you know. 
Mm-hmm. And when you look at the way the Canadians treat their crown lands, they don't call them public lands. They don't call them the forest service. They're called crown lands. And they, they massively clear cut them. The people don't really have much input there. And it, it was just really interesting to see how unique what we have in America is, really is. And we have a lot more conflict over our lands because of that, which I think is okay, you know, which is good. But, I mean, the, the fact that we have all these public lands and this mounting deficit and the fact that nobody else in the world is, has kept anything like that, I think that should be something we should be very cognizant of as outdoorsmen and outdoors women, outdoors people, hunters, fishermen, hikers, campers. Um, and not just recreation. You know this too, Kevin. Not just recreation. This is watershed protection. That's why they were set up in the first place. This is ecosystem services, all of that, you know. Yeah, it's wildlife habitat. There's a million different things yeah. for it, right? A million things, yeah. Now, what do you think? I mean, that kind of dovetails with recently. You know, Seek Outside is based out of Grand Junction, Colorado. Recently, um, people were like, yay, the BLM is moving to Grand Junction. It's going to create so much money in local stuff, right? Which that seems to not really be the truth to, to my knowledge, <laughs> at least. Um, you know, you have, you know, and um, apparently the guy who's the head is relatively anti-public lands as well. In the acting um, head. Yes. Yeah. Never approved by Congress. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, so I'll give you my optimistic thoughts. Was what I what I hope to achieve someday is to see what I hope to see is an America that recognizes, say, the Bureau of Land Management lands as the treasure house they really are, and we spend those those budgets are are increased in the efficiency and the employment, so that a move, a okay, so you'd keep your BLM headquarters in Washington, D.C., next to the power structure that makes all the decisions, right? Mm-hmm. But you would have an enormous office. You would have an enormous office in Grand Junction, staffed with the best range ecologists and the best watershed people and the best wildlife people, and the best like recreation managers. And so you would have the best of both worlds. Simply moving it from Washington D.C. away from the congressman who fund it, it seems to me to be a. Uh, a, a move to sabotage the agency. That's what it seems like. I mean, I haven't, uh, what I've heard is that not everyone has been moving out here. A lot of them have been like, no, never mind. Right. I mean, if you're a DC bureaucrat, you know, Grand Junction might not be your uh, cup of tea, right? It's a yeah. vastly different culture. So, yeah. so yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I'm old enough to have, have been in, a witness to was um, what happened with the BLM during the energy boom of the like uh, 2004 and say around Pinedale, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the things that the BLM did, and I, I wrote about this ad nauseum. I mean, I covered this year after year. Was the BLM tried to change its own culture? And it was to be more pro-development, pro-industry. And the people who didn't go along with that were carefully kind of weeded out. 
And I think that that happens. I think that this move to Grand Junction could also be seen as a way to move away the more politically oriented, and I mean in a good way, um, politically oriented people who want the BLM to work and be have representation in Congress. Mm-hmm. And have and have partnership in government. I mean, I wish people would go to the Department of Interior and see this beautiful building that we as Americans built that honored our, the the mission of the Department of Interior. I mean, and and swack, what happened to our pride <laughs> as Americans? I mean, what happened to us? since 1980 or whatever, when Ronald Reagan started telling everybody that the federal government was the enemy. I mean, I, I was raised to take huge pride in America and its lands. I mean, I listened to our music, our songs, you know, the Purple Mountains Majesty. I mean, we used to have all this pride. We built these huge, proud edifices in Washington, D.C. to honor our mission. I don't know. I'm off on a tangent. No, no, no. I mean, you make a valid point. I mean, we're not, uh, we we don't seem to have that pride. We're very divisive. Yeah. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff is um, very political and it's like you're on the, you're on the right side or left side or the wrong side. And yeah. If you're on one side versus the other, you're, the, you're an enemy. So that, that's kind of interesting. So you as a journalist, what do you think of that current status of the media and fake news and that a lot of stuff gets spread over social media um, that you could tittle, you could literally have this whole disinformation network on social media that propagates, you know, a whole alternate reality. I would say that it's in the top three uh, threats to our democratic Republic. And I get my. I grew up in Alabama, and I have a lot of ties there still. And um, the the understanding or the the beliefs about this COVID nineteen epidemic pandemic um, are diametrically different. I wouldn't not necessarily oppose. I would say they're they're almost opposite of what people I talk with in the West and in healthcare. And in New York City, and I don't mean urban elites, I mean people who are reporters and healthcare workers. The and and I, I kept looking for what are the seeds of this. And all I can say is that, that my friends that I grew up with are listening to a different media. And I would like to say that that media is valid and it and it has a, a, a valid it needs to be there. But what I see a lot is just confirmation bias based on dis- disinformation. And that, that. that can't be good. I, I would I would agree. It's There is a large confirmation, disinformation and confirmation bias to it, right? And I, I see stuff shared where people are like, what's the big deal, you know? I mean, we're killing the whole economy for... Or this or whatever and you tell them to do the math yeah yes they, they come up with some other story and it's like you know you're just you're like almost in some different reality i mean yeah i wish i could say your reality is okay but this isn't this is the math this is what people are saying so well i kept asking him i said are you a virologist or an epidemiologist i you say this so definitively that we don't need social distancing and we don't need all these things but what is that based on you know, I mean, Kevin I, or Dennis, both of you, like 
I mean, am I wrong? Like, like, am I missing something? Or is the preponderance of the evidence that we should take this disease event seriously? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're seeing currently right today is uh, April 10th. Um, yeah. We, we are seeing things, you know, trends are slowing at least a little bit, it seems like. Um, so evidence would point right to the social distancing, maybe having some effect, some yeah. positive effect, right? Um, right? Like it seems like the states that got on it early, like California and Washington. Yeah. You know, e even though they were probably a couple of the worst spots early on that they've managed to kind of nip it in the butt a lot for yeah. lack of a better term. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is, is that we, it's, it's all going to take time, right? So we, we can't possibly know if what we're doing right now is the right thing. Right. Um, for sure. But we, we should probably do something. Right. I, I agree. I mean, I, I just try to base. I really. So one of the things I'd like to ask you all about later is confirmation bias and its role in our in our national discourse. But right now, like what I try to do is base my decisions on whether whether to spend money or buy this or look at that or drive to town based on the preponderance of evidence, you know. And it, it seems like the preponderance of the evidence is that we should, as Dennis said, do something. But here's the depressing thing. If this works, if this is the most social, like successful thing ever, people that I personally know will say, see, I told you it wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which is going to be, well, and this is like, I've seen some crazy stuff on social media, right? And yeah. sometimes now I'm, I've, I've come to, I've come to maybe I used to want to maybe try to reason with everyone and sometimes now i probably have just gotten smart enough to not spend the effort so i throw my hands up in the air or make yeah. kind of a smart ass remark yeah me too. But like I, saw, I saw one thing where it was like a preacher said that covid19 was sent to um only to take out all the gays or homosexuals right sure and and then that preacher was diagnosed with it yeah. And I mean, the only comment I really had on social media was like, uh, I guess we know that he now prefers the, the, uh, <laughs> the of men. Yeah. You know? I mean, the, the acid test has been administered. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I just I, I think that I would like to I think that this is this is really abstract. But I think that when you leave a hunter gatherer lifestyle, and outside the circle of the fire, there's no more dire wolves or American cheetahs to, to hunt you down, that you become more and more abstract. And you and you come up with, with BS like what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you just make it all kind of um, – just kind of make it all fit together, the reality that, that you want yes. to create. Exactly. I mean, so, yeah. And I mean, that's it's, simply not possible. Like, like, I think one of the wonderful things about rock climbing, like, like say even no matter what, whether it's multi-pitch or whatever, is that your reality is so immediate. It's almost like a, a, a meditation, you know, I mean, you, you mm -hmm. don't tie, the, you don't tie the knot right. You're going down, buddy. You don't put the pro in right. You're going down. It's not going to be theoretical. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny too, right. To have, like you think of sports teams and stuff where 
um, they, you know, if they have a common enemy, they can come together as a team and do yeah. something. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting to see the, the U S at, at this point being like, we kind of have a common enemy, but we are still in disagreement as to like how to handle that. Or like we, yeah. we're not necessarily coming together as much. I mean, we definitely are for sure, but, but not as much because you still see some, some outliers. You know? Sure. Well, I think a lot of people came together pretty well, but like um, Angie's mom initially was like, I'm going shopping. No one's in the yeah. stores. This is great. And it yeah. was like, no, you're, you, you need to stay at home, you know? Yeah. Um, how, wait, okay. So we've kind of gotten into this whole thing. How, how long do you think this is going to last? I'm going to give you my perspective. And SO, Seek Outside was on this pretty early. Um, we started really March 1st, kind of starting a cleaning protocol. And probably by March 10th, maybe you were working at home, Dennis, and mm -hmm. the bulk of us were working at home. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, we still have a cleaning protocol. We still, you know, we're sewing some masks, all sorts of things. Um, we sent almost all of our seamstresses home. But my opinion as a business owner, just looking at this, is twofold. One, our government kind of failed us in the preparation, right? I mean, a lot of the reason that this social distancing is necessary is that we don't really have anything else to fall back on. We can't all just go get tests. We can't get antibody tests. There's not yeah. necessarily the protective gear. So we don't have a way to protect ourselves, the large population, other than distance. In fact, from what I've seen in media reports, we were still selling you know, protective gear to other countries as early as early March, right? Yeah, yeah. But I feel that this is really, and Dennis knows because I we had this on a call a few days ago. I said I think this is like an eighteen or twenty-four month reality at this point. You yes. know, that it's not going to that there may be some let up, and things like antibody tests may help people get back to work or feeling safe or whatever but there's just not near enough of that stuff and that it's probably going to be relatively long-term. Most of the time, most of their time is going to be like this. Wow. I hadn't thought about that, but I also like this though, but I'm again, all people, but Americans, the ones I know with, there'll be adjustments made and like money, money made, for instance, in certain places and people will be, uh, they'll sell certain things. I think we'll make, if, if it, it does last that long, it'll be somewhat transformative, right? No, I, mean, I, agree. I, I don't I, think we'll just be hanging out in lockdown, like going, holy smokes. <laughs> well, I think a lot of these things, as far as society is concerned, uh, a lot of these things, the longer we go, yeah. some of these things are going to stick, right? Like yeah. people have now gotten used to ordering the groceries online. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if ordering groceries online becomes the bulk of way groceries are done, why have a premium retail space when a warehouse will do, right? Yeah. yeah. And a good internet connection and a good way to fulfill it. Right. Um, likewise, I mean, the stock for Zoom, which is an online conferencing thing, uh, their valuations went through the roof, right? I'll bet, um, yeah. Where, where other industries, is, there's always going to be when things like this happen, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing like a pandemic or a war, but yeah. when there's things that really change the way America operates, 
things yeah. shift a lot. I mean, like the late 90s with computers, it was probably a bad time to be um, someone who sold filing cabinets. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or the classic of the buggy, the buggy whip maker, you know, back in 1909 or whatever. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, thing, things just change, right? And there's yeah. new opportunities and different parts become more standardized or ingrained within American life, you know, and then other parts are de-emphasized. Yeah. I could definitely see a, a kind of Manhattan project on the federal level to revolutionize the grid, which in my, which for, for, as I understand it is, um, has been cobbled together like since the 1960s and has huge cyber, cyber gaps. Um, now that everybody is conferencing on, on the internet and ordering groceries on the internet, um, I could definitely see finally the United States of America like addressing its its weaknesses in its grid, which I think would be great. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's something that's a huge vulnerability there, right? So. That's what I'm told. Like one of the, like in the top ten national security gaps is the grid. Um, what, how about this, man? Wouldn't it be insanely great if we had we localized agriculture to some extent, you know, and like um, local organic farmers and local producers could start making money and making a living and competing with all these subsidized agriculture out there um, as a result of this of this pandemic? Well, you keep opening cans of worms, don't you? You just mentioned yeah. all the subsidized agriculture, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, that's well, kind I mean, of a little bit of pet peeve. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's like, go ahead. I'll show you what real food security looks like, and it's people that you know growing pigs and cows and gardens and kale that you know where it comes from, and you go hand them some gold Krugerrands or a handful of cash, and you get what you need. No, I agree. I agree 100%. I mean, I've tried to be, for the last 10, 15 years or whatever, I've tried to be as much of a locavore as possible, right? Yeah, like if you, yeah. If you, can, if you can make it happen within 50 or 100 miles of your house, doesn't yeah. mean I don't like to go on a nice trip, but if you can make it happen, why not? Right, so. right. Well, I mean, if we're talking about like uh, life or death, like food security, mm-hmm. food security would probably be, be served – I don't know. Maybe that's a question. I think it would be, for me, it would be well served by bigger gardens closer to town. No, I agree. We started, when this happened, we started firing up our garden again, which we'd neglected for about five years. And yeah. and we got some chickens and stuff again, which we had gotten rid of our chickens maybe three years ago. Um, yeah. But I mean, outside of that, I mean, we know how to can. Um you know, we try to hunt most of our hunter fish, most of our meat. Yep. Right. So, and then you see things like, I mean, one of the things I worry about with this is supply chains if they get disrupted. Right. Yep. And I saw some, some story a couple of days ago, I didn't really read it in depth, but like Tyson, I guess, um, had, is having a hard time making meat or chickens or something like that because they're having a bunch of sick people or social distancing or something yep. like that just doesn't yeah. really work in that, that right. environment. Right. Yeah. How do you run the line, you know, slaughtering whatever thousands of chickens an hour and social distance with all, you know? 
I mean, it's, I don't know. The whole thing is, um, it's been, it's pretty disturbing really. If you think about it, um, like, like, uh, overall, it, one of the things it reveals is how wobbly and fragile this thing we built is. Yeah. House of cards, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it is. And on a windy day. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you guys find it interesting too that you know um i don't know during during a war you know some some people maybe had to go away you know the drafts and and those things so people were being told what to do but this is maybe one of the first times since you know like the spanish flu which i mean i don't remember um but I'd hope that, that. The, that, that the entire country is just pretty much being told what to do Right, yeah. that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, and it, and, and I yeah exactly, and and I mean I mean I'm with some of these libertarian people who think that that's it's both dangerous, but it also requires that we trust enough to go ahead and 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 evaluate when that's dangerous and when that's necessary. Good Lord, why does everything have to be one way or another? Hmm. No, hmm. I agree, and I, I I somewhat agree with that. It it doesn't feel maybe so right giving up a large swath of people giving up their rights relatively easily yeah dangerous uh, yeah but at the other on the other side of it it's like well we don't really have the medical infrastructure or a lot of these other things to um weather this living the way we were yeah yeah sure a lot of people are going to be all right but a lot of people are going to die and i mean i know we have pretty i live in a county of about four thousand people um, I think we have three or four cases here. Um, turns out I know one of the people uh-huh. and, you know, he's, he's pretty fit, but I, from what I understand, he was laid up for about three weeks. Gotcha. You know? I mean, it, was, it wasn't like a, like, Oh, I had the flu for a couple of days and yeah. um, I'm, I'm done. You, you know, I'm good. You know, it wasn't yeah. something like that, you know? Right. Yeah, from I, I was I got really fascinated by people who had it and would would recount you know their symptoms and how they went through it, and most of the ones that I've I've followed, one of my sister's friends who is sixty seven, two or three of my sister's friends actually have had it, and they they wow. weathered it they weathered it but they're older, and um they they did not did they did not say it was easy or small. And I've had enough of that kind of stuff in my life to know that bacterial pneumonia or whatever that follows those events, like if you don't get enough rest or you don't fight it off completely. I mean, I mean, it's very it's a debilitating deal. Yeah, 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 it definitely is. Um, Now, on the positive side, talking about stuff we've seen on social media. Yeah, I, I did see that a German doctor said that whiskey may help fight against <laughs> well i should be well uh, insulated from the virus at this point <laughs> yeah. I, I think i think i need to uh i i tried to get away from it for a few days you know i tried to say no i'm gonna go april without any whiskey but now yeah. I'm, I'm like nah nah you know <laughs> i may as well have a couple on the rocks every night or something one of one of my problems with that is it uh my, I, I would like to go somewhere other than just my local store so that everybody doesn't know exactly how much I drink. 
<laughs> yeah, you'd like to. <laughs> you'd like, well, you can order online with ShotsBox, I think. Can so, you really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then who delivers it? Um, UPS or gotcha. okay. FedEx. Yeah, yeah the FedEx guy might be like, man, this guy's a lush. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, what uh? So when when your friend had this the COVID nineteen, like um, it was he was he did he think it might kill him? That I don't know of. I mean, I haven't spoke to him since yeah. then. Um, yeah, his his kids are friends with my kids. Yeah, right. Um, and so I haven't spoken to him. He did an interview in the paper and angie talked to his girlfriend um and so i'm just kind of piecing it together but from what yeah. i understand yeah it was it was about three weeks that he was you know yeah. maybe maybe in pretty rough shape you know yeah um so i mean i i don't know i mean i, I think i like i think practicing avoidance is is the best way you know i mean yeah. I went, the other day i saw something online and it was like assessing your risk, right? And yeah. And so I put in my age, and then I put in that I'm taking this very seriously, and the, that my house only has four people in it, um, and that they're taking it seriously, and this, and it popped up um, that I had like a 71% chance of getting it in 18 months, and a 2% chance of dying. And gotcha. I was like, what? So I went back and I was like, okay, what if I don't drink at all, right? Yeah. What if, what if I don't drink and I act like a little angel and I do this and change a couple of things? It still told me I had like a 2% chance of dying. Yeah. And I was like, what? That doesn't sound good. I don't like that. Nah, pour me another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I was wondering, like, you remember, like, in the Spanish flu, uh, very isolated people often, died, they died of it, too, you know, because nobody is, like, completely isolated. Hmm. And so, True. You, I, mean, I mean, I mean, Dennis said he barely remembered it earlier. What was your experience during the Spanish flu? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty fair. <laughs> You're pretty that good was in at another, social media. <laughs> that was in another lifetime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just uh my grandfather was gassed in World War One. He was old when he had my mother and my parents were kinda old when they had me, but uh he was gassed in World War One and he came back on those troop ships. And um I was thinking the other day, he died when I was in my teens, but uh it would be interesting to ask him like what he was thinking. And like, like how, I mean, that was a huge event, you know, mm -hmm. and he volunteered to go to world war one to get off the farm. And so, uh, I just think that I, I, there's an incredible account of Montana during the Spanish flu that's in Montana historical, uh, magazine. And it was pretty desperate. I'll tell you. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you called up the other day, right? Yes. And you called me and you, you're writing a, book and you were thinking about going to bear's ears right yes. camping for yeah. a few days and i was actually san juan county where bear's ears is primarily located is trying to tell non-residents to don't bother coming we're small we're isolated so yeah I respect that yep i was really planning on going there too because i thought it would be nice neat to see all those native sites yep that you know because it was kind of like what really happened to those ancestral publics right yeah was yeah did they move on was it a drought was it a pandemic of sorts 
Yeah. Right. I mean, you could see it. A pandemic could go through those canyons and just wipe people out. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So, well, you know, I was just, everybody's been reading about this because of the obvious circumstances at hand. But before Lewis and Clark met the Blackfeet here where I live, they had been um, reduced by up to about 50%. And that would be what is the Lewis and Clark expedition was what eighteen oh four like I'm I don't really I'm not sure of that, yeah. but so they they had already experienced the first full wave of of being introduced to a new virus, which would have been smallpox more than likely the first one. Yeah, well, that's um, pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some people that think that the United States was populated um, five and six times more than we thought. It's just that when by the time the Euros got here, those waves had already gone through from the fur trade and the deerskin trade and the beaver hide trade, you know, from the east. Hmm. So uh, and and Florida for sure. I got I got something really interesting. So when I was in college, we had to read this book called The Florida of the Inca and by a guy named Garcilaso de la Vega. And he was the scribe to the DeSoto expedition. And this is Alabama, Florida, you know, uh, all of that. And uh, they were, they saw the mound culture with big cities and stuff all through Alabama. And that was in 1400. And by the time the French came in in Mobile, Alabama, to do the vine and olive colony, which was 17-something, all of those people were gone, and those cities were gone, and they were back to what they call the Woodland Indians. <laughs> really? Yeah. I did, it just blew my mind. And, of course, to an academic, this is every. I mean, all historians know this stuff. I just didn't know it. Well, I mean, so, I mean, we've, we've been screwing the Indians for far longer than even I thought. Absolutely. And, and inadvertently at first, probably, but it was very convenient for us, say, to, to come against the Blackfeet when they were at 40% of their strength or whatever. Yeah, no wonder they weren't fans of us. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. The, the history of it. In fact, I mean, the world is kind of create the human world is kind of created by pandemics. Well, you know, some of it, like. You and I, we went on the same trip in the Arctic, right? Yeah. With, with yeah. Barry Whitehill, probably yep. one of the most knowledgeable guys in existence of all the real estate that extends from Fairbanks North, right? Yeah, I would say uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I was like, hey, have you seen that show, uh, The Last Alaskans, of these people? That he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going over and visiting yeah. with Haimo on the 20th, right? Yeah. Um, so... I mean, that, was, he that showed was his job for years. Yeah, yeah. And and as we were driving up there, Barry was like saying, well, I put in on this river, and then I came up down here three weeks later, and then yeah. I met with these <laughs> tribes and these elders, you yeah. know, and then, and then and I did a bird study along the way. Yep. And then you keep driving. Well, I put in on this river, and I came out you know, 250 miles over this way and met with these people, you know, these really remote villages and stuff. And then as we were on the trip, he was able to show us like, you know, these, these people were really living the hunter gatherer lifestyle back in like the 1950s still, maybe even into the 1960s. Yes. 
Well, when we went that triplets last summer up to the uh, Fort Yukon to meet with the Gwich'in, mm-hmm. they were they're really they're super interesting people and they were so incredibly hospitable like that was a trip of a lifetime for me um but uh they're really close to it still i mean they've got the the geese in the spring and fall they've got moose they have to go really far for caribou but um it's they're still very I, I mean, let's put it this way. A flock of geese flew over when I was at the community hall where they were having a concert. Mm-hmm. We're amongst the best. They're, they're amongst the best fiddlers in the world. I mean, this, these people, they've got it going on. I'm telling you, they've got something good. But uh, all these people stopped what they were doing, looked up and go, hey, look, geese. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and like for lunch, you just get a boiled goose. That's it. Salt and pepper and a, and a boiled goose. Hmm. And and that's you know it's pretty good, um, but they're they're very close to that lifestyle. They're closer than anybody I've ever traveled with or met. Well, we had Dave Freeman on a couple couple days ago, right? A couple, yeah, couple episodes. Yeah. And did you ever hear about their North American Odyssey? No. So, okay, so they're writing a book on that right now, right? And okay. basically, they started in Bellingham, Washington, and they see kayaked up the uh, inside straight or inside passage there. Okay. Yeah. And then they did a combination of hiking and canoe routes all the way up into the to the Arctic Ocean, Northwest Territories. Yeah. Then they dog sledded for like a thousand miles in the winter through all these remote villages. Yeah. Um, up there, and he was mentioning. That well, they they didn't really dog sled anymore, but but a lot of them were, you know, knowledgeable enough about it that they knew the dogs needed yeah. like frozen fish and stuff like this in the winter. So I think he mentioned to me not on the podcast, but at another time, like they were going through a little village, and the village is like, "Here's a caribou leg for the dogs," yeah, and stuff, you know. So they aren't. I don't know which ones those were, but they aren't that far away. I mean, yeah, they've traded the dog sled for the snowmobile. Yeah. Um, but. Well, we we did an interview with a guy named Walter Peter, and mm-hmm. he had a snowmobile with 10,000 miles on it. And uh, it, he ran his trap line off of that. And he told me that a lot of people still had dogs, but that you had to be a dog man, like our dog person. You, he said it. You gotta love the dogs because it's like your whole life is taken up with with you know doing that. And he said he was pretty glad to get the snowmobile because that really wasn't it, he wasn't as obsessed with that as you need to be. Yeah. And he uh, this- yeah he. He called the snowmobile his iron dog. The snowmobile is like just a tool, right? Yep. It breaks yep. down. You try to fix it. Yeah. If it's not worth fixing, you, you know, throw it apart it out, get another yep. one. Yeah, you part it out. Yep. Yeah. So where the dog, you need to not only work with and train, but you very well, depending on, I imagine if you have a lot, it's a little harder. But you can have an emotional yeah. connection and stuff like that too, right? Yeah, there so. was a lot of dogs in Fort Yukon, like chained up, like around that are obviously people's dog teams, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I think but like Walter and them had converted over to the snowmobile. I was trying to think of what it took to put ten thousand miles on a snowmobile. <laughs> a lot. 
Yeah. <laughs> a, lo a long trap line? Yeah, but for sure. I know I know one of our customers, an early customers of Seagull Side, um, he was out of Kotzebue, and he had like a 300-mile trap line that he was running. Yeah, gotcha. So, that, that's so, I mean, how you do it. Yep, exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, so. I don't know. Walt, Walter's like super fit. He's in his 40s. He looks like he's about 30. Wow. I mean, he's 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 definitely doing something right. Well, well, are they still living pretty close to a hunt, hunter gatherer lifestyle then, right? Yeah, he's a carpenter, and he'll get on the ferry or the uh, boat sometime and go do jobs. But um, I, I would say half of his time is spent hunting and gathering and cutting firewood. That's a huge thing because in Fort Yukon, there's people that are there like like him, who are called providers. Mm -hmm. And they have re they have responsibility for X number of relatives or whatever um, people they take care of with firewood and meat and stuff like that, and they use those big fish wheels. Yeah. If you, yeah, I, that was the first time I'd ever seen one of those. What's a what's a big fish wheel? It's it's a homemade like a trap. You put it in an uh, you put it in the current of the Yukon, and it 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 has chicken wire and say it looks like lodgepole pine. It might be alder, and a little frame, and the current turns it, and as the fish enter, they get swept up and and put into like a holding pen. Hmm. And they all I could see was that they require a lot of like building and maintenance. There's people people are always working on them. Yeah, I, I saw. I think I think uh, I haven't seen one personally, um, but DB Palmer, who Ben Brochu mentioned, who did the okay film for the mm -hmm. Wood River Expedition, um, he posted some stuff using a fish wheel last year on the Copper River. So, hmm. and it's just catching uh, fish that are coming up to spawn as they're coming up. Yeah, they're yeah. catching that salmon run. Um, up the Yukon, and then they catch a few other things too. I couldn't, I can't remember all of them. I think there's a white fish, but you know, it's primarily kings. Ooh, kings are good eating. Oh boy. So, and, yeah. I mean, that part of the Yukon is so far from the, uh, from the ocean, but I think they're still good. Um, it's really, I mean, I was, I was blown away by the, by my experience there. We were only there for a few days. I, I told him, I told Walter, another guy, I'd love to come hunting with them, you know? And they were like, oh, okay. But they didn't really want me to come hunting with them. <laughs> bummer, bummer. That would, that would have been like a hunting trip of a lifetime. Um, it would, it would. I think they just thought it was like, they, they don't care. I mean, they got their own thing going on, man. They're a long way from, from, from where I'm at. Like, they don't so, need me. <laughs> 